0: Have you ever thought about the figure of Esther in the Bible and how we can be encouraged by her example today? So Tom, we've met together now to talk about a number of figures from church history and from uh, the New Testament itself, but I don't think we've actually looked at anyone from the Old Testament that the Mm. church remembers in its regular calendar. And so that's what we want to do today, is talk about the figure of Esther. And the church remembers Esther on...
1: The 20... (laughs) That's a great one, I just looked it up. The 24th of May, and I don't know why the 24th of May. Okay. So, Tom, tell us a little bit about Esther. Well, she has a book of the Bible named after her. That's probably the first point of reference for a lot of us to remember Esther. But um, the Book of Esther itself tells this dramatic story and we can't go into all the beauties of it. I recommend everyone read it. You can read it quite quickly. It's not too many. I think it's about six, seven pages in your Bible.
0: It's just a great read, isn't it? It Isn't it? Oh, yeah. Mm.
1: I just heard someone say their parish put on a play of it some years ago. You can imagine that. Oh, absolutely. Mm. And there's all these levels of irony and intrigue and Mm. drama. and um, Violence. (laughs) Violence, exactly. All the stuff we like Mm. to um, go out on a Friday night to see. So she is this queen, a queen in Persia. Um, The dating is sort of significant in that it's the time after the Jewish exile. So the people have been dispersed. Um, Jerusalem has been raised flat. They go to Babylon. um, And then after 48 years, a bunch of them return and they begin to rebuild Jerusalem. Esther is one who didn't return. Mm. She's gone to Persia. And, um, and the story sort of picks up in Persia with um, her being raised by her uncle, Mordecai. Mm.
0: And so although we can't go through all the details of the story, just in, in outline, what happens to Esther in the book of Esther?
1: Well, she becomes queen. Uh, it's sort of a rags-to-riches tale, perhaps. She is um, the, the king, um, um, Ahasuerus, um, is often how you pronounce it. Um, he sees her for her, her beauty he actually was already married, but he was getting annoyed with his queen. So um, he, he picks up um, Esther instead. Um, so she becomes queen. Mordecai, her uncle, is sort of a top advisor who ends up um, foiling a plot to kill the king. So we're sort of in the king's good books as well. Um, Esther doesn't tell the king she's a Jew. It's an interesting point. She, she hides this. She's a bit coy about it. And as the story goes on, um, a famed or a, a top advisor in the kingdom, um, Haman, orders the king to kill all the Jews essentially, or to use violence against the Jews. And um, this is sort of Esther's moment. Does she speak up or does she stay silent and hope that this passes and no one finds out that she's Jewish? It's this dramatic crux of the story. Mm. And
0: um, this works essentially. Yeah. She speaks up and, and her people are. Uh, saved and um, and from memory, one of the great ironies at the end of the story is that the bad guy—it all sort of comes back on him it and Haman—and it's fantastic. Mm, mm. Yeah,
1: exactly. He um, he yeah gets just what's coming to him. So the very um, what do you call it? Gallows. A, gallows. The, the very gallows that um, he was preparing for Mordecai, he gets hung on himself. But before that, just going back to that crux, this kind of moment that Esther has um, is when she has to tell the king she is a Jew to try and save the Jewish people. And she doesn't know whether she wants to do this. Mordecai says you have to, and he says this to her. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? (laughs) This is a great sort of poignant statement, and one for us to consider when we remember Esther, where we have vocational duties that come to us sometimes that we didn't choose, that we don't want, and yet only we can perform them. Um, Mordecai has all the courage that's necessary. He's willing to tell the king everything, but it's not up to him. It's up Mm. to Esther, only her. She's very reluctant. She doesn't want to do this, and yet she realizes maybe this is the moment that I've been called to do, and no one else can do this. And this sometimes happens in our vocations. There's something that only we are called to do. Um, Even though we know someone who's a better teacher or a better spreader of the gospel or Um, more courageous at standing up to authority figures, none of them have the position that we do. And Esther is a beautiful example of someone who rises to the call. And and the king looks upon her with favour. He hears she's Jewish, reverses the decree, even says, well, Jewish people can now take up arms themselves to um, ward off any um, people who might be attacking them, and indeed the Jewish people do. They kill a bunch of people as well. And um, so she's to this day even um, commemorated in a Jewish feast, the Feast of Purim.
0: Mm, mm. Makes me think of um, people I talk to sometimes who are struggling with their, you know, maybe Christians in a family that's not Christian or in a workplace that isn't yep. Christian, and and they often feel this this sense of being overwhelmed by what they what they're called to, and and how you know, there's like exactly like you said, there's so many people better suited than me to be in this situation, and. And, and one of the things that we sometimes talk about is just the fact that the thing is, you are the one in that situation. Right. You have the relationships. It's, it's your family. It's your workplace. And... Um, it sucks. Yeah, and it's difficult. And it's not what you
1: want, and yeah. yet it's what God's called you to and, and where yeah. God's placed you. One thing, too, just on that, is that Esther doesn't tell... Her husband, her Jewishness at the beginning, doesn't tell the king. I find that interesting even as Christians. Maybe there are tactical times when we don't necessarily wear this on our forehead. We don't come in with all guns blazing, but mm. actually wait for the day when it's, when we're called upon where it will actually mean something more. There's no hard and fast rule here, but Esther shows that there was a time for one thing and the time for another, and that courage um, dictates both in a sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think about that with people in workplaces and that sort of thing, you know, there's some there's some thinking sometimes that the role of a Christian is to be as upfront as possible and have a bible on your desk straight away or whatever it is yeah. to try and to be a witness and 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 perhaps there's something good about that zeal. And yet on the other hand, in my experience as well, you know, maybe there is other wisdom in being a good employee. Um, being a good friend in a relationship, whatever it is, and, and waiting for the, for the right moment, God's appointed time. And...
1: So when Esther does come to her husband, the king, she's trembling because if someone approaches the king and he doesn't receive them favorably, they're dead. Mm. This is the, just the, the rule, even, even a wife of the king. So she approaches with fear and trembling, and yet he sees her and says, it's wonderful to see you. I'll give you half my kingdom. What is it that you're after? And it's because perhaps she's built this rapport. Um, she knows, he knows she, she, that, that he loves her. Um, she's a person of goodwill. And so here it's time to um, cash in on the goodwill that she's built up. Mm. It's an interesting way for a holy woman to conduct herself.
0: One of the verses that comes to mind for me from, from Jesus is to be as wise as serpents and as innocent mm. as doves. Mm. There seems to me to be a lot of wisdom in Esther's dealings right through the book.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's a wonderful book, again, to repeat. Worth reading, full of humor, irony, violence, as you say, too. And, um, but in the midst of it, sanctity and a great example for us.
0: Mm. So that is Esther. We should say Queen Esther, remembered by the church on May the 24th. Thanks again for tuning in. If you're not a subscriber here, make sure you hit that subscribe button and the bell notification to keep in touch. And if you've enjoyed this video, hit the like button as well and share it with your friends. This is Kairos, God bless you. Who was Saint Monica? And how can Christians today be encouraged by her example? This is what's coming up with Pastor Tom Peach. Tom, first of all, when does the church remember Monica?
1: Well, there's a bit of a story in it. So she's remembered on the 27th of August. Usually, saints are remembered on the day of their death. I think she died on the 4th of May. But the church has moved her feast to the 27th because her famous son, Augustine, is celebrated the next day, on the 28th of August. Lovely. Yeah, great. And that says already a little bit about Monica.
0: Yeah, so tell us a bit more about who this character um, in the church's history was Monica
1: she's known as being she's, she's the mother of Saint. Augustine who's one of the great saints of the church changed the church in a way a Western civilization we're in the Lutheran tradition Luther was an Augustinian monk um, but Augustine you could say would not have been a Christian were it not for his mother. Um, she's we're talking about North Africa it's in the fourth century. she has a husband who is not a Christian really a son who leaves the faith. And she becomes this model of persistent prayer, of of dogged prayer, if you like, of of focusing on the one thing needed, which is the gospel for her husband and her son and maybe other kids as well. And almost like the widow in the gospel who just hounds the judge for righteousness, Monica becomes this great saint and and model for the church of just hounding on God's door in some ways with, with tears. Tears, lots of tears. Because Augustine was a
0: bit of a wild child,
1: right? You name it, he did it. Mm -hmm. Well, look, who knows? But but certainly he was. And and she just would not give up. Mm -hmm. Um, She prayed no matter what he was doing. You know, there's another Bible text that I'm reminded of. At the beginning of Job, do you remember? Mm -hmm. It talks about how Job was a righteous man. And one of the evidences for this is when his sons would go out partying, and, and invite his daughters and they'd all have a nice time. Um, they'd eat and drink, it says, and Job would get up in the morning and offer prayers and sacrifices for them. Just knowing, in case. Just in case they yeah. sinned. And, um, and, and Monica was like this for her son, Augustine, who was very bright, uh, moved away from home, uh, moved to a kind of the, the big smoke to continue his learning, gave up any kind of faith that he had and, um, and lived a good life a little bit but also got swayed by all sort of all sorts of trendy philosophical heretical kind of sects at the time and and she just stayed with him almost annoyingly so you know when you're a teenager and your mum just won't let you go mm-hmm. um, um, Monica just just wouldn't let Augustine go there's a great story about that he he gets a job in Rome it, it's a huge promotion he becomes sort of a pro- professor of philosophy she, she follows him to the to the port at Carthage, and she doesn't want him to go, begging him not to go, and um, and and he says, "Oh, it's all right, mum. I've just got to go see a friend or something like this." And he steals off to Rome in the middle of the night or early morning without telling her, because he just knows she's going to follow him, and 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 he just wants to get away from this pesky helicopter mum <laughs> who's who, who's persisting in this prayer. I mean, he talks about. He says, "More, she cried for me." she shed more tears than most mothers do when their kids die. Mm. Um, um, she just wouldn't let up.
0: It's a wonderful example, isn't it? And, and you've and, and all of the things you mentioned have begun to you know, um, inform the sorts of ways that Christians today would be encouraged by her example and, and, and imitate her example. Um, but perhaps you can flesh that out a, a bit more and, and talk about um, how can we today look to a figure like Monica and be encouraged? What particular sorts of people or vocations may look to Monica for Christian encouragement?
1: Every Christian can look to Monica, especially those who have family members, people they love who aren't in the church. Uh, Monica is just a beautiful example of this. She, um, she, it's the one thing she, 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 she focuses on in her life at, at the expense of all else. She ends up following Augustine to, over to Rome and Milan, after a while, um, she pesters the bishop, right, Ambrose, and says, please, you've got to talk to my son. You've got to knock some sense into him. Pastors sometimes are not unfamiliar with requests like this. And he says, it's, there's no use. This guy is too far gone. It's going to be throwing my, my, my pearls before swine. And she just won't give up. She keeps pestering him day and night, crying, and saying, you've got to go talk to him, some sense into him. A- and he loses patience and actually says, um, go away. No son over whom so many tears have been shed, is going to be lost. It's a beautiful line. It's a, it's a glorious line. And so there's an example for all Christians here for some persistence. Ambrose knew that Monica's prayers were going to do more than what he could do um, in this context. And that is a huge emphasis, you know, just in my, my
0: pastoral ministry in the church, Um, this is a concern that so many folk have particularly in their old age for their children and for their grandchildren they feel helpless you know there's a number of other challenges going on in these people's lives sometimes huge health things Mm. but I can tell you their number one concern on their heart is for their children and grandchildren and the faith and and Monica's the
1: the one to look to for the sort of example. And you can read her story in Augustine's book The Confessions it's Mm. sort of like his autobiography where he goes back and tells the story of his mother and his own conversion and, um, and the conversion which finally came and which Monica received with great joy, and it's, it's, a, it's not something that we all live to see in our lifetimes, um, but there's, uh, uh, I think reading Monica, we get to journey with her, journey, this sorrowful journey of having family members outside the faith. And even though rejoice with her, even though our joy may not yet be complete ourselves mm-hmm. too, she's a model both of the prayer and, and tears and passion that goes into this, but also of the joy. Finally, when he does convert, she says, there's nothing really left for me. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like St. Simeon. Um, now, Lord, let your servant depart in peace. She says this to him and she dies nine days later. Right. It, it, it's sort of like the focus of her life. So, so in that sense, too, there's something for people who have children who are in the church or family members who are in the church, too, that this is the one thing needed in a way, something to cherish, to build your lives around. Yeah. If there's a choice between church or sport, Monica will help you to choose the church. Mm. Um, this is the one thing needed, the one thing um, worth giving our lives for. And when I think of Monica too, and I've, I've,
0: I love this story, I love the story of Monica. I've, I've quoted it in, in sermons and in various settings for teaching. And one of the things that occurs to me about her as a figure is you have this great figure of, of Augustine. And by his own admission, none of the, the massive influence that he had would have happened without this humble, quiet, um, you know, in her time, relatively unknown saint. You know? And it's, it's a real encouragement to, to the, the quiet humble Christian life, you know, persisting
1: in prayer behind the scenes, not needing to be out there in a a big, a big figure, that sort of emphasis. Church history is just wonderful for this, the kind of domino effect and the causality that you could, that you can, because without, without Monica, we don't have an Augustine. Without Augustine, we don't have a Luther, you could say too. And without Luther, we don't have our church and, and, um, and we don't have the, the refreshing teaching of salvation by grace through faith that was revived in later centuries. And, and so, um, Monica, this humble woman whom most of us haven't heard of, uh, plays this pivotal role. Um, Just like in Old Testament history too, these minor figures that actually, through which you trace the lineage that ends up in our Lord Jesus himself too. Yeah.
0: Well, Tom, thanks for being on again today to talk about St. Monica. The church remembers her on August the 27th. 27th. This quiet, humble saint, persistent in prayer for her son's conversion and her husband's and through those prayers, God did amazing things. This is Kairos. God bless you. Lucas Cranach and Albrecht Jura, remembering giving thanks to God for the gifts that he gives to his church, particularly the gift of artistic expression. <laughs> And Are remembered on April the sixth. So, Tom, who was Cranach and
1: Durer? They were both contemporaries of Martin Luther. So, this is a particular day for Lutherans to remember Cranach and Durer. And they lived in the Germ- Germany of the sixteenth century. They were both painters. They both painted um, in Saxony and in Nuremberg, especially. And so, today is a good day to remember the visual arts. Let me tell you why. Often, when people think of Lutherans, they think of music when it mm. comes to the arts. Even a lot of Protestantism, they think of music. That's the kind of specialty, um, preferred medium of art. Yeah, and you,
0: you I remember hearing about you know Luth- Luther's hymns are what carry the Reformation and all these sort of things.
1: And today's a day to remember. It's that's not the whole story. That that the whole visual art. Medium has a long story in the Reformation and is rightly celebrated by Lutheran churches. That's also interesting because some Protestant churches don't have any visual art in their churches. Certainly at the time of the Reformation, some rejected this as being blasphemous to have any images within a church. I mean, Luther had to come back at one point because they were ripping down paintings and
0: smashing statues, didn't he? And all this sort of thing. Exactly. So it's a
1: key part of Lutheran theology and of the Lutheran church history, to actually elevate visual art, to see it as something given by God and something good in worship and beautiful um, for the senses and a rich part even of our presentation of the gospel.
0: Mm, mm. And so these two um, guys, Cronach and Jura, what sort of um, visual art more specifically were they into?
1: Lucas Cronach was the court painter of Saxony, so in many travelled a lot Um, around with the Elector, painting the Elector and other subjects as well. But he was based um, later then in in Wittenberg, and he became a close friend of Martin Luther. He was actually the godfather to Luther's eldest son. Mm, He was the town apothecary, the chemist, Mm -hmm. um, on the site as well. He painted Luther a huge amount of times, um, many, many times. um, And he was always a religious painter in many ways, But as the Reformation progressed, you could even see, or can even see, his style changing to fit the Lutheran Reformation in very interesting ways. What sorts of ways? So, it was common in medieval art to paint the crucifix, to portray scenes from the scriptures even, and Cronach begins his career doing this. But Martin Luther emphasised that while Christ won Salvation on the cross, He doesn't deliver it to us on the cross. He delivers it to us through His Word and through the sacraments, the means of the Spirit, the way in which Christ can deliver His mercy directly to us and His forgiveness directly to us. Mm -hmm. This changed Cronach's approach to art so that he would continue to depict Christ on the cross but also wanted to show how this mercy was then received by us. Give you two examples. There's one, the famous one, the Weimar Altarpiece, where Cronach depicts himself at the foot of the cross, and blood is pouring from Christ's side onto Cronach. It's a bridge between what happened 1500 years ago for him and what happened in his day. Same for us too. There's a great. um, It's a good day for us to remember not just what happened 2000 years ago, but the way in which Christ serves us now. Mm. Christ said, lo, I'm with you always, and I'm among you as one who serves, he said. So Christ didn't just serve us on serve us on the cross, he serves us in the liturgy. He serves us in word and sacrament, and Cronach's art brings this out. The other one I wanted to mention is a very famous one in the Wittenberg Church, where Luther preached, and others too. It's the altarpiece, and it depicts the sacraments, the place where God does his work today among the Wittenbergers, the Wittenbergers, among the congregation. Mm. Again, it's a very famous painting where Cronach doesn't just concern himself with what happened in the past, but actually how Christ is acting now. It's wonderful.
0: Mm, mm. Yeah, I remember when um, you know, when I was going through the seminary and they took us down to the uh, archives and they showed us old versions of Luther's catechisms, even in the early days in Australia. And, mm. and, and even... to to that day, they they would have a lot of visual representations Mm. of things that were going on and Mm. they were emphasising for us how important this was in teaching in the Lutheran Church all the way through. I I wonder too about these times how, you know, I'm not so good with my history, I don't know how many of these, how many people in the time of the Reformation could easily read, certainly fewer had access to to written texts anyway, and just to think how powerful these these paintings must have been for Mm. teaching the faith, for, for the
1: Reformation spreading. That's right, and some of Cranach's paintings are quite didactic. That is, they teach a lot. And he's both remembered by artists, but also just remembered by Christians because his paintings tell a a big story. There's a beautiful one with um, the law and the gospel on two sides of this painting. Um, Josh will put it up there, Um, and you'll be able to see the richness of these two covenants almost that Cronach is portraying, one of the law, one of the gospel, both biblical but how we sit in between that those covenants and within one painting Cronach crams a whole lot of theology and scriptural meditation that you're right wasn't always available to people who couldn't read mm. but could be visually depicted. Mm. I want to mention one more thing, um, Lutheran dogmaticians Lutheran theologians often defended the visual arts um, with a number of Bible passages but one that Cronach enjoyed too was from John chapter 3 verse 14 and 15 just before the famous verse that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son this is what Christ says just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life People point to this passage because Moses lifted up a serpent. He didn't proclaim a message. Mm. He he lifted up a gospel. And in some ways, the cross too, visually represented, is lifting up the gospel, lifting up and beholding our Savior on the cross. Mm. And this is a way in which visual representations of the scriptures, visual representations of Christ too, can become key to our devotional and spiritual life. And it strikes me that this may be an especially good theme to remember in our
0: day. We live in a day in the West where it is a very, very much a visual age, where where the, we're bombarded really by you know, images in all sorts of ways. Um, where there's something of, I think, a recovery of of imagination and the imaginative mm-hmm. life, and, um, and and so this Christian expression with the visual arts. It, I think there's there's a there's something here which is a potential connecting point with our our society our culture around us hmm. having said that i'm sure this is applicable in 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 any age i just think about going into a church with my kids hmm. and and it's it's hard for them to follow along sometimes you want to gradually lead them into the liturgy and how to listen to a sermon and that sort of thing but Gee, if you're in a, in a big beautiful church with stained glass windows and paintings and, and whatever, just to be able to point to these things, for them to look at these things, to think about them, um, it's just a, they're, they're wonderful tools, as you say. Mm, absolutely. And
1: so, Tom, we've spoken a bit um, about Cranach. What about Jura? Jura is a very interesting guy. And um, even whether he became a Lutheran in the end, he's sort of contested. He died. In the 1520s, late 1520s, I I recall. He loved Luther and he wrote about how much Luther had done for him spiritually in his spiritual life. He wanted to paint Luther, he didn't get around to it. He painted Melanchthon, actually. He was a part of Nuremberg, a key figure in Nuremberg, and Nuremberg as a city was won over to the Reformation Mm. before. Dura died and so it's thought that he was a part of this Lifely, movement, yeah. l- likely part of this movement and so on the occasion of Nuremberg becoming Lutheran, Dürer actually painted a painting of four apostles, one of whom is Saint Peter, whom at the time the Catholic Church um, said is represented now in the Pope and this was one of the contested um, doctrines or debates at the time of the Reformation. Dura portrays him actually bowing his head And the words under the painting say, All worldly rulers in this threatening time, beware not to take human delusion for the word of God. For God wishes nothing added to his word, nor taken from it. So you get Jura even using an example, a painting like this, to um, promote the Reformation, argue his case for the importance of the word of God, for not bending it or adding to it. Or subtracting to it, yeah. but for keeping it, um, keeping it pure and holy. Yeah. I should also say, Jura is also remembered often among Lutherans today for a famous painting he did called Praying Hands. You may have seen this one before, oh, of course. Picture of Praying Hands. There's a pious story, and I can't tell whether it's true or not. It could be, um, where, and the story is that Jura and his brother, when they were young, both wanted to be painters, but there wasn't enough money in the family. His brother said, you go to art school, I'll work in the mines and I'll fund your work in the art school. Mm-hmm. So Jura spends time away, um, he does his time at the art school, he learns the trade of a painter. He comes back home, he says to his brother, your turn now, I'll, I'll go in the mines, you go to art school. His brother shows him his hands, which are ruined mm. from his time in the mines and said, I can't go to art school anymore. And in sort of an in homage of this And out of love for his brother, he paints his brother's praying hands. Mm -hmm. And so they're hands that are a bit gnarled um, because there's a a big story behind them, a story of sacrifice Mm. that Jura never forgot. Whether it's true or not, uh, let's pretend it is because it's just a lovely story.
0: If that's not true, it should be. Exactly. (laughs) Thanks again, Tom, for helping us to remember Lucas Cranach and Albrecht Jura on April the 6th. Remembering, giving thanks to God for the gifts that he gives to his church, particularly the gift of artistic expression, of painting, another way in which the word of God and the gospel comes to us. This is Kairos. God bless you. Hello, welcome back to Kairos. I am Pastor Joshua Pfeiffer here with my friend Pastor Thomas Peach to remember another special day on the Christian calendar. This time, October the 25th, where the church remembers Dorcas, Lydia and Phoebe. So, Tom, um, this is a little bit unusual that we have three different um, people remembered on this one day, October the 25th, these uh, three women. So, perhaps you can um, tell us briefly about each of them and then we can talk about them as a group, perhaps.
1: Lovely. So, they're all in their scriptures. They're all in the New Testament, um, these three women. Um, The first is Lydia. So, uh, the first, let's one, if we go through the list, let's go with Lydia. She is maybe the, probably, according to Acts, the first European Christian. It's funny, we're all sort of, some of us of European heritage, mm-hmm. and we often align Christianity with Europe. It isn't born there, though. It's mm. born sort of in the Middle East. And Paul and Timothy cross over into Europe, into Philippi, and that's where Lydia becomes the first convert.
0: This is, we hear about this in the Book of Acts, The right? Book of
1: Acts, exactly yeah. right. Um, we hear that she's a, a seller of purple goods. Purple is this uh, royal colour. It's mm. a wealthy colour. It suggests she was probably wealthy too. Mm-hmm. The um, scriptures act goes on to show that she gave hospitality to Paul and Timothy and other Christians as well. So um, the tradition sort of has arisen. She was a, a wealthy woman, uh, a Jewish woman, because Paul and Timothy were speaking um, in a Jewish context um, outside of the city. When she, It says that the Holy Spirit really opened up her heart mm. and she became a, a Christian, the first European Christian.
0: And to go along with this theme of, of her most likely being wealthy, from memory, um, later on they meet at her house in the book of Acts. Is they do, right? exactly
1: yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Um, they're in jail then, um, uh, Paul and Timothy um, in Philippi, and when they, when they uh, escape from jail, if you like, when, they, when they're released, they go and see um, Lydia again. Mm-hmm. So she becomes the anchor of the Christian community. Mm-hmm. So the book of Philippians written to these Christians at Philippi Lydia, according to Acts, is the first of them. Mm.
0: So that's Lydia, and who's the next one on the list of three?
1: Let's go to Dorcas, mm-hmm. okay, also known as Tabitha.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, she also appears in Acts, and she was an early Christian, well known for her good works. Um, so she is a great uh, uh, supporter of the poor and a great giver of charity, and she lives in Joppa, not far from Jerusalem, and she dies suddenly. And the people are distraught, including um, some disciples. And so they hear that Peter's nearby, and they beg him to come. And so Peter comes. It's quite a moving scene in in the Book of Acts. He comes to see the dead um, Tabitha, Dorcas, and it's it sort of seems like there's a big crowd there. And there's strange detail. They're showing Peter all the garments that Dorcas had made, almost showing off her craftwork to him, and, and, and showing um, these these blankets or the tunics and other, other things like that. And, um, and, and he sort of almost has enough and just says, get out, everyone. And there's this scene of almost intense personal prayer that um, Peter kneels beside the bed, I think, and prays um, um, in front of this dead body and says, Tabitha, get up. A- and she does. And, um, and there's great rejoicing, but also then this story makes a huge impact, Acts, the book of Acts says, in the region. It seems because she was so well-loved, a, yeah. a great uh, someone that was loved for her good works. I think even um, it was not unusual in the Lutheran Church of Australia back in the day to have Tabitha guilds, I think yeah, they were sometimes called. This, yeah. yeah, and uh, named after okay. this, this early um, worker for charity and, and the poor especially, a hard worker. Mm. And, um, and so she's remembered by the church in names like that as a great charitable Christian. Mm.
0: So Dorcas or
1: Tabitha. That's right. And then Phoebe. And then Phoebe too. And we don't hear a lot about Phoebe. Um, she comes up in Romans, but she's called there a deaconess. And so um, she's she's remembered as really being the first woman deacon, just as Stephen is remembered as the first male deacon. Um, Phoebe is the sort of prototype, the, uh, the origin of a um, uh, female deaconess, uh, an office sort of in the church um, of service and, and love, just as Stephen fulfills this um, in the book of Acts mm. too. The one other little thing we know about um, uh, Phoebe, Phoebe then is that Paul commends her to the Romans, but also entrusts her with the letter. And so um, she has some standing here for yeah. Paul to entrust her with such a precious gift that we all have benefited from.
0: Is this in Romans 16 we hear about Phoebe. That's right. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. And so these, when we take these three women together, that are all, all remembered on the same day in the church's calendar. Mm. Um, how can Christians today be encouraged as they think about, you know, again, that, that line from the Lutheran Confessions, what grace they received, and also um, be encouraged to follow their example?
1: Yeah, well, all of them have a love for the gospel and a servant heart to facilitate the gospel's um, promotion and, and proclamation. And, I mean, one other feature of this is that you have three women all together on, on the one day. And so it's a day even to remember the role of women in the early church. Mm. Um, there's, there's a lot to go into that we can't now, but in the Roman world, women were often aborted. It's just a a fact of of what happened. There was a lot of sex selection. Mm -hmm. And it's not... I think the ratio was often in the Roman world something like 130 men to every 100 women. Um, So there was a female shortage everywhere and they were not given full equality and and they were second-class citizens in some contexts. It was very complex in different places. The Christian church provides a real um, harbour uh, uh, for women and a real um, home and, and, and elevates women and provides a, 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 yeah, a look at home and, and, uh, for women. In the same book of Romans, I think Paul greets 15 women and 18 men. Mm. And people say that when you actually balance it for what the population was, less women than men, right. there's actually technically more women mm. uh, uh, in, the, in the congregation perhaps than there were men. And there's other data of when persecutions came and Christian churches had their possessions confiscated, you would have um, clothes for the poor and, and there would be 100 tunics for women and 40 for men. Mm-hmm. And, and there's data like this that suggests that actually the early church became a place where women were women's full dignity was honored and valued and cherished Mm. and in these three women we see that already in the early church in the very early days um happening that there is now in christ jesus no male or female no um greek or slave no 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 greek or jew no slave or free
0: yeah and you see this right here like you said so many places in the new testament these you know paul seems to have um, these these very strong relationships with these these female co-workers, partners in the gospel, he sometimes calls them. Mm. Um, and and what strikes me about that chapter in Romans 16 and and his relationship with with Phoebe as well as the other women there is that you have this book of Romans, which is um, widely considered one of the more um, or just a doctrinally heavy and robust epistles. You know, it really outlines. Um, the whole Christian faith in some ways. And then at the end of it, you get this intensely personal set of greetings, including to, to these women that he obviously held in very high regard. And you get this in a couple of other places as well. And, and I just love seeing that at the end of Romans and you just all of a sudden you get this picture of of this, um, of this interconnected early Christian community all mm. over that area and mm. these strong relationships that held it together. Um, out of which then um, the teaching of, of the scriptures um, um, came. And I think that's, it's really helpful for me to keep that, that reality in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so Dorcas, Lydia, and Phoebe, mm-hmm. um, these three faithful women in the early church, remembered on October the 25th. Um, God bless you again, Tom, for being here. Thank Great to you. be here. Thank you. And um, God bless you for watching. And we'll see you next time. This is Kairos.